is huge. I mean, it's like a man. It, it's big. Kane, son. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study. Not to bring back. But to wipe them out. That's the plan. You have my word on it. All right, I'm in. Let's rock! Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Patrick Green, Andy Geek Girl, and today we are welcoming a special guest back on the show, Sarah Welch Larson, who was on the show for Alien Day. We had a bunch of content come out on Alien Day, and she was on one of those episodes. The title escapes me right now, of course, but it was a really great episode. We got such a great response from it, and Patrick, well, all three of us, but certainly Patrick and I had been discussing, how do we get her back on the show? What do we What do we need to do to get her back on the show? Should we make her, con- <laughs> you know, uh, uh, contributing host? What should we do? But then the I had the idea to talk about Alien, not just the first film, but the Alien saga and feminism. Never really... I've never really fully unpacked that, not that we're going to do that fully tonight, but I felt like that this was a great window into that discussion. So thank you for coming on the show for this. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm always happy to talk about alien and feminism, and alien and feminism is is definitely a, a solid topic. So excited to be here. So you're saying we 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 got had the right combination of words to get you to come back on for <laughs> becoming alien. That that your book comes up still frequently on episodes. We really, really love that. And actually oh, just really? last night. We recorded our 200th episode, and uh, and we were all still, you know, talking about about your book. So it's so nice to see you again and to have you back on the show with us, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's a delight to hear. Honestly, I w- I genuinely wasn't sure if anybody was going to read it. So I'm so happy that you all have have read it and enjoyed it and are continuing to talk about it. That makes me really happy. It's the deeper things, in my opinion, that really make this series, at least the original trilogy. And certainly portions of the newer stuff, it makes it last because it's layered. There's mm-hmm. more. That's not just what you're seeing on the surface. Not to say that they imbued the scripts with all of this subtext, but in some ways they did. Mm-hmm. And it's there for us to continue to discuss. So um, as we get right into this, I, can you tell me what feminism means? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's that snarky quote of like, feminism is the radical belief that women are people too. Um, and like that feels a little bit too pithy and and probably doesn't really fully um, encompass all of it. But it's also true at the same time. Right. Like there's this idea that, you know, women are people, too, and we have thoughts and feelings and, and deserve to have not just a seat at the table, but a say in the conversation. Um, I feel like that probably sums it up. I'm also, I mean, I, I write about feminism fairly frequently and, and I think about it a lot, but I'm by no means like a scholar on like, so, so it's one of those things where I, I think about it a ton. I don't know if that is the correct academic term for it, but I, I feel like it's a, a good enough working definition that I think we can go from there. I think that's a great working definition. And I also think, you know, it's worth saying at the beginning of the episode that feminism is something that means various things to various people at various times in history, right? So mm-hmm. it's a whole collection of ideas and 
um, you know, concepts that all basically, I think, fall into the bucket that you're talking about, which is that we inhabit a world that traditionally sees things through men's point of view. And because of that, women are treated and gender minorities are treated as as an equal in a lot of ways. Definitely. And so, right. And and I think one of the things that I do want to be careful about, too, is that feminism has traditionally skewed quite white. And um, so there's also this idea of intersectional feminism, which is something that I'm still continually learning about. But coming from a white woman, like my perspective is going to be a primarily feminist one. And then occasionally I also need to sit down and shut up and listen to women of color and people of color and, and those in gender minorities as well. So um, definitely not the full story, but an attempt to get a little bit closer to the full story than what we, we tend to get within um, those who write the histories, I suppose. In preparing for this, I honestly just looked up the definition in a variety of sources, and it was so varied, just the semantics of it, and I guess it's coming from the perspective, but my favorite was just a feminist is somebody who just recognizes the humanity in everyone. Hmm. And and that, you know, covers sort of the, the whole blanket of people and the intersectionality of everybody um, and again, I'm coming from the perspective of a white woman, but it's just recognizing that we're just human, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody. And I loved the word everyone in there because we tend to just think women can be feminist and men who claim to be feminist are either doing it for a reason, some sort of incendiary reason, but or or weaker in some way. At least some men view that. But I just think recognizing just everybody's human. We all have shared experiences in that commonality of we all have emotions. We all feel deeply and struggle. So mm -hmm. I liked that one the best. Yeah. And just, just back on the intersectionalities for a moment too. Um, that's something else that I, in, in my experience, so like just in my personal sort of feminist life, like uh, I work for an organization that ad adheres to feminist principles of leadership so like meetings are structured in ways that like are less patriarchal and, you know, more people at different levels of power have access to decision making and things like that. Um, so it really it's it's not a lot of people and, and I don't blame men, uh, you know, for Me doing either. this, because I, I think that the, the word sounds it sounds kind of incendiary on its own because it kind of had to because it had to be noticeable when it was, you know, coined. But like it, it's not this kind of militaristic like women are better than men. I don't know. I don't know why that started and why that continues to be used like that, like a pejorative term. Mm -hmm. Um it's basically a gateway into seeing the world differently, like you're both saying. And those intersectionalities that you're talking about, Sarah, like like it, it not even just race and, race and ethnicity, but things like age or things like disabilities, right? Like mm -hmm. it's and once you start seeing things not from the traditional perspective that like that I have as like a white straight man, like once you start looking at other people's perspectives, you start seeing it's like all of these invisible lines of power that you weren't really aware of. And all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, like I should probably listen more you know yeah i think it's that the idea said, that i should probably listen more <laughs> <laughs> i think it's also the idea that the default shouldn't necessarily be the default because everybody does have something valuable and um important to say and to bring to the table especially when we're talking about you know the the inherent worth of, of human beings so i'm not going to um condone any any 
thing where someone is is trying to come to the table in order to demean or belittle anybody else like that is right out like that doesn't count um but the idea that those who have been put in positions of less power or have not been able to speak up nearly as much like the fact the idea that there is i don't know a, a possible world out there where eventually we could get to the point where there is gender parity and there there is um equity and equality i think is i don't think we've gotten there yet we definitely haven't gotten there yet but the idea that we could get there someday and that that better world is possible i think is a really powerful one what's interesting about this topic in, in terms of feminism and the alien series i remember when i was much younger much 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 younger and seeing Ripley and seeing this is, of course, way before social media, but seeing her being talked about having her gun and men reacting, thinking, oh, she's badass. She's awesome. And I think for a while, my idea of feminism was a woman with a gun. Oh, mm. look, she's she's badass. Mm -hmm. That makes her like even today. I mean, that that stereotype continues where Ripley's badass. Well, there's these two diverging versions of Ripley. There's the badass Ripley in the elevator with a gun getting ready to go get her kid back. And then there's the Ripley in Aliens who has taken off her clothes mm -hmm. and she's been sexualized in some way, even though that's not a sexual moment whatsoever. I mean, this isn't everyone. This is a very specific group of people who will talk about Ripley in these terms of, oh, she's hot, she's this, she's that. Oh, she's, she's a badass, she's got a gun, she fights, she's an, you know, the ultra feminist. And I, that never really sat well with me, but even my own experience, not so much experience with feminism, but my own journey to that idea is my own mother, where when I was being raised, my mom was the strongest. She was the most dominant voice in my life in mm -hmm. the best way possible, where sh things weren't done unless she made sure that they were done. And she saw me as a full person. Even when I was younger, she would engage me as a human. She would not just engage me as my, this is my child and child do what I say. She would talk to me. She, cause I was an artist and I made all kinds of crazy things and she would ask me about them. And so as I grew up, I just had this, I put her on this pedestal and then I ended up putting women on a pedestal, which I think was probably an overcorrection mm -hmm. because my, my, because I didn't have that great experience with my father. So I ended up kind of putting women on a pedestal and kind of shitting on men for lack of mm. better terms, which I kind of still do, but I don't, obviously I don't think that's what feminism is, but for me, that's what it was. It was women are way better at, at life than men. Women just do this much better than we do. Mm. Um, I, as a, as a gay person trying to date, I would much rather date women, but that just isn't how the cards fell for me. I would get along so much easier with women. I would be such a great husband if I was straight, but, <laughs> uh, but so the idea of me, like of my own feminism. And then of course I see Ripley, I'm introduced to Ripley and aliens. And we've had this discussion before and it's like, Oh, I mean, it's like not even that there's a glowing light behind her because there isn't, but she's just a normal person who does the right thing but she's been launched or vaulted into this feminist, I don't know, uh, atmosphere or stratosphere. And I'm curious if it works for her, if it's mm. appropriate for her. Mm, mm, yeah. I don't know. I, I think I'm kind of of two minds as well. And I try to avoid like thinking about things in a, in a strict binary wherever I can. But I think that the way that Ripley is presented, especially in Aliens, is either she is the gun-toting badass or she's Newt's surrogate mother. And 
a lot of writing and depictions of her kind of try to wrestle with that tension between, well, how can she be a badass with a gun and also be a tender mother? And I think some people do a good job of engaging with that in terms of, well, she's both and she's whole, but the movie seems to swing pretty dramatically from from one end of the spectrum towards the other. And I think the strength of Ripley as a character in Sigourney Weaver's portrayal of her as being that whole person, she's not just a badass with a gun, she's also terrified. Um, like I think about that scene of her going down in the elevator to go and get Newt back specifically because she promised to. And you can see the fear in her eyes as she's sort of gearing up and getting ready to go. And I think Sigourney Weaver carries that wholeness as a character throughout the rest of her portrayal of Ripley. Even Ripley 8 in Alien Resurrection. <laughs> um, I think that there are still seeds of that. I don't know, like they like she's a cohesive character, even though she's also kind of impossible to put into a box or into a bag or like you, you can't really fully categorize her because she refuses to be categorized because she is a, a full human being. Um, I don't know, like the 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 critical conversation, I think, about feminism and the Alien series tends to be mostly focused around Ripley's character. And a lot of people will hone in, on, particularly on the first two movies, because they're the ones that basically everyone has seen. And the focus on Ripley in the first is that she is a woman who has been completely stripped away of gender because nobody cares that she's a woman. And that was definitely um, revolutionary in the 70s because the character was written originally to be a, to be a man, at least in some versions of the script. Um, and then I think... There was also some critical head scratching over the fact that Ripley became this mother figure in Aliens and it's subtext in the theatrical version and then made much more obvious in, in the extended edition where you have that uh, inserted scene where you find out that her daughter died when she was gone. And I think a lot of people kind of took that text to mean that Ripley was being reduced to being a woman because she is a mother and then she kind of has to carry out that role um, throughout the rest of the movie and she picks up Newt as sort of a surrogate daughter and her healing is kind of crucial or Newt's sort of adoption by Ripley is crucial to Ripley's healing from her initial encounter with the alien. And I kind of take issue with that because I think that Ripley, again, is still a whole and, and interesting character even without Newt. And I think the thing that makes her a feminist character isn't the fact that she's a mother and a gun-toting badass, but it's the fact that she sees the inherent worth of all of the people that she's come into contact with, whether they're the colonists on LV-426, and she's concerned about the fact that there are families there that the company is going to sacrifice, or she's concerned about the well-being of the Marines who have essentially been sent in to die with incendiary rounds. Um and I think that recognition of their worth and those characters' intelligence and their ability to solve the problem alongside her, she's not going to be a default leader because she doesn't want that power. She's interested in sharing and spreading that power around. And I think that that's a slightly more subtle feminism that I really like about especially those first two movies. I completely agree with you and everything you said. Everybody, well, not everybody, but she tends to be reduced to mother and and badass like you said and i think the feminism represented it especially in aliens but in both is not just ripley it's the 
characters surrounding her, how they respond to her, but also to each other as well. And as you said, you know, I, I think aliens is completely underrated in the fact that most people just dismiss it as like, oh, these morons, these Marines that are morons, they're not morons. Yes, mm-hmm. some of them are brash, but they're all very good at what they do. They were put in an impossible situation and they all act together. They're all most, right? Obviously, Burke is his own doing his own thing but um they're they're there they all want to survive they're supporting each other and i think the characters are a reflection of ripley in that they recognize the humanity in each other they wanted to go back and save each other right Mm -hmm. they knew when it was hopeless they knew when there was hope and i think they all play off of each other and the and it's really just about the humanity in all of them and I, I, yeah, I I kind of would argue that Gorman is not particularly correct. good at what he does. <laughs> correct, and for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. I I mean, for a purpose. But yeah. right, I meant like most of them, and I I just think feminism is so much more than mother and badass gun toting. That just mm-hmm. happens to be what she needs to do in that moment because she's pragmatic, right? Mm-hmm bringing a gun down the elevator at that moment is the most pragmatic and logical thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's not what she it's passionate about. She's not like, you know, it's just something that she has to do. So that's my take on it. Completely agree. Well, I think that like, if you want to talk about aliens vis-a-vis feminism and, and go beyond that idea that Ripley is just like a mother, she's like quote unquote, just a mother. And she's reduced to one in this movie. To me, the most feminist thing in the whole film is that she not only listens to Newt, who's a child, you know, let alone an unarmored civilian, but she follows Newt through the tunnels and even like she mm. relies on her, which is a deeply trusting thing because she's seeing Newt for who she is when everybody else at first is seeing her as just this like shell shocked, you know, uh, carbon covered, you know, hermit. Um, Ripley sees her as a fully, you know, realized human with great potential and expertise to listen to, which mm-hmm. is, which is like fucking revel. That's revolutionary. You know what I mean? Um, and that whole reading of like Ripley, actually, Sarah, you talk about this quite a lot in your book that she brings, she like helps people to re realize themselves as humans, you know, mm-hmm. and she does that throughout all of the movies, aliens, maybe in the most overt ways, but alien three is another great example of that where mm-hmm. she comes in as such an outsider and in the act of giving people like a reason and like listening to their fears and taking them seriously and then leading them from outside and then then from within it's like a very she's a, an amazing agent for for that throughout the whole film you can look at burke and this might be in your book too so i apologize if i'm ripping you off no you're but, good but burke is really like the agent of like anti fem and i mean this like anti feminism in that movie right mm-hmm. he's like patriarchal capitalist he's all about the bottom line he's like top-down following orders, very rigid, very traditional 1980s, you know, Reagan-era capitalism in a movie. And yet Cameron treats him like clearly as the bad guy, which is which is good. And as the as like the the polar opposite to what Ripley brings to it, which is this idea of like fluidity and listening and agency. So yeah, so I think part of why Ripley never comes across as like a two-dimensional uh, proto-feminist character is because she's always allowed to be so much more than just that, right? 
Mm-hmm. And she also, in being more than just that, helps others to be more than just what we think they are too. So she's like full of of gradation. And the last thing I want to say about that is to me, like the reason why all of these films are feminist in various ways is because like nobody is only one thing. And it's that really extends to the female characters, especially throughout. I mean, Call, right? And Resurrection, that's a great example mm-hmm. in a movie that's not you know, great of a pretty deeply ambivalent, interesting female character who is not failing the Bechdel test and who is doing things that are, you know, unexpected and talking about procreation in very interesting ways that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily expect. The films keep giving us complicated female characters. Vasquez, right? Talk about an intersectional character right there, right? Mm-hmm. She's a deeply interesting, deeply unexpected, and deeply surprising reading of a character who on the page is just this like prototypical, you know, Latinx badass 80s stereotype. She becomes so much more than that because she's given room to breathe as a character. And that's like a, a feminist way to make a movie, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Vasquez gets interesting too because she's not played by someone who is Latinx either. So, you know, you you get a, a little bit into potential brown face there as well, which is not as great. But yeah, I, I agree that her her as a character is, is deeply fascinating. And I think I, I'm so glad that you brought up Alien 3 because it's my favorite of the Alien movies, like on a, on a certain level and largely because that's the first movie that really brings Ripley's gender into the question. And makes it an explicit part of the text. Um, There are some arguments that the Alien series is really a series about the fear of rape. And it's kind of as a metaphor because you've got the alien, you know, impregnating people and then they're forced to give birth and then they die in the process. And it's horrible. Um, But Alien 3 takes that gender that has been previously completely uncommented on about Ripley and it folds it into the text by sort of crash landing her into a prison pl- prison planet full of men who haven't seen a woman in years. And those men, the way that they react to her is that she is a threat. And she is a threat specifically because she is a woman. And she is a threat because she is a woman because she is, in their words, a temptation for them to sin. And that I find fascinating because it feels a lot more nuanced, I think, after you've thought about it for a little while, then most like, oh, women are bad because they're women uh, kinds of takes. It's it's It kind of gets at the root of feminism and patriarchy, which is that women can be a threat to power as it stands in the world today. And the way that Ripley negotiates that situation, I think she's doing the best that she can with what she's got, which really is kind of what all of us are doing in the world we live into. Just a lot less extreme and a little bit of a, a I don't know, a, a more inviting planet, at least I would like to think. To your point about Ripley's gender coming into play in Alien 3, one thing that I've noticed in the first two films is it's never even a point of discussion. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting in and of itself because of the time period that these movies come out. But further into that, for instance, I've been watching a rewatch of the game of Game of Thrones, which is a show I absolutely love, which to use a word that's often used, it's very problematic in terms of its portrayal of women. Very, Mm -hmm. very, very. Like you have these very powerful women who are under the male gaze the entire time and then Mm -hmm. destroyed, killed off by the male writers um, once they become too powerful. And, there's a scene in 
one of the episodes of Game of Thrones where the daughter of the king of the Iron Islands is like, hey, no, I'm going to I'm going to rule. I'm going to be queen. And people are like, oh, we've never had a woman be king before. And her brother acquiesces and said, no, you should rule. And I was thinking about Ripley. And even as it relates to Vasquez, no one's like, oh, Dallas is dead. Ripley's in charge. Oh, no. Great. We get a woman in charge. And the setting where that should have happened, not should have because I'm glad it didn't, but it should have happened the most is in Aliens, where she takes charge over Gorman. She pushes him out of the way. She gets help from Hicks, and she is now in charge. Not because she felt like, I have to be in charge of this mission, but she was like, you're going to get these guys killed if someone doesn't do anything. So Mm -hmm. she does something. Never once is anyone give, even Burke, as shitty as he is as a character, never brings her gender into question. It's her intent that is a threat to him. I wanted to recognize that and see how so surprising that is for movies made in that day. But then you fast forward to today where you just, you see that more like, well, oh no, like, even in House of the Dragon, which is a, another show that I'm watching, which of course is a prequel show to Game of Thrones, uh, it's not really a spoiler. It's kind of like the story of the show. This young girl of 16 is made heir to the th- the the Iron Throne, it's the first woman, and of course there's all this chatter about, oh, you shouldn't make a woman, you know, the um, the leader of of the seven kingdoms like this has never happened it shouldn't happen and we're going to fight to make sure it doesn't happen which i thought was really fascinating this leads me to my question in terms of okay how do i contact uh, contextualize this um why do you think that people view women or, or people see a woman who like lara croft or ripley and they have a gun or or they have an incinerator and they where did it come from where, what happened where feminism was equated with having a gun feminine feminism was equated with oh she can kick ass she can beat up those guys and you see movies like uh that movie with Charlize Theron or I think it's called Atomic Blonde or mm-hmm. many other other movies starring like La Femme Nikita or the uh, I think it's called The Point of No Return with um Bridget Fonda which is a spin on La Femme Nikita where you see all these women who can beat up guys and they can do all these amazing things at the same time if you watch those movies they're highly sexualized as well so mm-hmm. not only are these women beating up men and other people most of the time they don't get along with other women which is Ripley didn't have that problem at all they don't get along with other women and they're in states of undress not to to say that there's anything wrong with being in a state of undress obviously but the these two things are always put together where yes she's powerful but she's also fucking sexy too and look mm-hmm. she's barely wearing anything which eviscerates her power in some ways in my but at the same time you i you can just hear the producer saying, oh, no, her being naked in this situation gives her power, which I'm like, bullshit. Her being naked is for you because you want to see her naked. So I'm just curious where the argue or where the discussion of women kicking ass became a feminist ideal. Um, I don't know the origins for that. Um, but what I can tell you is that movies like Atomic Blonde, which is a movie I wanted to like and, and really didn't. Um, they feel like a male power fantasy that's been skinned in a woman, essentially. Um, and I think the problem is that 
a lot of these movies take the female character and they they try to treat her as though they would a man, but then they they say like, oh, but she's a woman, so we have to treat her the same way that we treat all other women in all other movies. And then that kind of leads to that that gross paradox of she's going to go and kick ass and she's going to do everything that men can do, but she's also going to do it half naked. And again, like there's it it gets complicated, but I think part of the problem is that feminism kind of gets boiled down to this idea of a strong female character and strong female character doesn't really mean well-rounded interesting human being (laughs) necessarily it just means here's a piece of shorthand that we can use as an archetype so that we can get to the business of the action in the movie and it feels like lazy filmmaking to me because it feels like a lot of these stories are an attempt to just cut to the chase, show the audiences what they came to see, which is people getting blown up or shot and not really paying much attention to anything beyond what looks cool. And I think, I think that there's, um, there's a real problem with only wanting to show just the text and not pay very much attention to the subtext of what's being shown on screen. And that's one of the things that I find very powerful in the Alien movies in particular is, especially the first movie, there's a heavy emphasis on letting the images speak for themselves and show you information in new and in surprising ways. Um, If I can get real weird feminist for a second here, um, there is a book from um, 1993 called Barbara Creed's The Monstrous Feminine, which is a feminist read of a lot of different movies, but um, chapter two focuses specifically on Alien. And instead of focusing much on Ripley's character, Barbara Creed focuses on a lot of the imagery that's on screen in the first Alien movie. And she focuses a lot on Uh, H.R. Giger's imagery of like there's a lot of vaginal openings and there's a lot of very sterile like even the opening shot where you get the crew waking up from cryogenic slumber Barbara Creed likens that to being a birth but it's completely sterile and clean and white and there's absolutely no femininity in that shot at all even though all of these characters are technically being born both for the audience and then just in terms of imagery. And so she's looking at a lot of the subtext that you get from those images where you have a lot of dripping, oozing, like really gross imagery, or at least imagery that is intended to be repulsive. And Creed reads that as this is fear of this idea of an archaic mother, like something that came long before any of us did and something that made life possible. And it's terrifying because it means that we're not us, we're that thing. Um, that sounds <laughs> this sounds like a, I don't know, a, a philosophy 101 lecture or something like that. But that is um one of the more powerful, I think, feminist readings, especially of the alien movies, particularly because it's willing to engage with these movies, not just in terms of the characters or the plot or the dialogue, but in the imagery that it's layering on screen and then the the meaning that comes along with all of that. Yeah, well, you don't want to know me, lady. I'm a murderer and rapist of women. Really? Well, I guess I must make you nervous. Do 
you have any faith, sister? Not much. Well, we've got a lot of faith here. Enough even for you. I thought women weren't allowed. Well, we've never had any before. But we tolerate anybody. Even the intolerable. Thank you. That's just a statement of principle, nothing personal. You see, we've, we've got a good place to wait here. And until now, no temptation. Obviously, the imagery contributes so much. To get back to Jamie's point really quickly about mm -hmm. um, the movies of the time, like, you know, sexualizing women while also having them uh, kick ass. I think that just comes from mostly the men's idea of what men, what they think is powerful in women, which is their sexuality. Mm -hmm. Like that that's their mm -hmm. power over them. So they feel like I'm going to make her really sexy because that's her power, but then put a gun in her hand because that's our strength. So now she's like really badass and it completely negates or reduces true power, which I think, again, Ripley's true strength is her sense of justice, right? More than any other character I've ever seen on screen. She has a profound sense of justice. And that to me is feminism, mm -hmm. right? Just again, like doing what is right because it is the right thing to do. And that's often the strength of both men and women is compassion, justice, um, you know, it, fairness and, and doing what's right and, and work ethic and all of that. But it's not as tantalizing i guess to put on screen and so or it takes time to kind of flesh that out in a meaningful way i think it's just a matter of like reducing it to what i can get up there and that's entertaining mm -hmm. visually mm -hmm. if you want to get really freudian the gun is also a phallus so you know you've got that going exactly <laughs> yeah and uh just piggybacking on both comments in the, in the monstrous feminine which i think we should probably link to for people if they want to pick up a copy of it um, in the show notes. There's a, a lot of discussion about fetishization and about Freud and about how you got, you have dicks coming out of vaginas coming out of penises and how like all of these layers of visual metaphor and vagina dentata, they're all like really wrapped up together in this film and why the visual language of film allows things like this to speak to us in really complex ways. But to, to all three of your points, you know, I was thinking Jamie about what you were saying. Uh, I, I think before I even get into this, I do want to say that I am glad that there were that there have been movies like that made, if only because they've made new roles for women that didn't really exist previously. Mm -hmm. So, like that's kind of kind of a throwaway thing that's good about them. But I'm I'm glad that we've had you know and that at least there were some changes in the gender norms of who gets to play what. That being said. Yeah, I think especially going from what Andy was saying, it's clearly this is like the male gaze's idea of what a strong woman looks like, right? And 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 you were just aware of that from the beginning and into the end. And it kind of gets away with it in a film like Atomic Blonde, because it, or like Salt, you know, with Angelina Jolie, because mm -hmm. it's like fun, right? It's like, oh, we're not taking it too seriously. Like, oh, whatever. Yeah, it's, it's okay. She can like wear boots and like have her boobs out, but also shoot people. It was, it was a movie, you know. There's this kind of flippant, way that those things are treated but there's nothing in alien that's flippant or or um you know casual 
Mm-hmm. And I think that extends itself in a larger way to the fact that, and this, this, I could have a blind spot because I am a, a, a man, you know, but to me, I really feel like the male gaze is like absent from alien um, almost entirely. I'm sure that there are moments you could argue that the end uh, on board the Narcissus that clearly I think is, you know, with the low angle shot of her getting dressed. I, I think that is deliberately sexualized somewhat, mm-hmm. but um, other than that, like not only to my, in, in my reading, and please call me out if I'm wrong, not only does it feel like the male gaze is absent, but it kind of feels like it's inverted throughout a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean that in terms of the things that we are meant to be afraid of are things that give men a window into the female experience in a lot of ways, biologically, but also sociologically, the ways that, when, that women are ignored, for example, but also the ways in which women give birth and are subjected to rape that sometimes results in that against their will, like rape is always against your will. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is that like, what I think a deeply feminist reading of alien in particular is that, you know, if you take feminism at its highest level, like we did at the beginning of the show, which is that, you know, it recognizes that we live in a world that does not have gender equality. And because of that, the world functions in different ways that should be addressed. The alien is all about that because it it basically is giving men a chance to see the world as a woman sees the world and to be afraid in the way that previously women were only kind of given the opportunity to be afraid of. Mm-hmm. And so for for me, that's part of why it's scary. And I think that's part of why it's like continually uh, interesting. And the fact that it does that through visual metaphor and so rarely through dialogue and entirely without exposition, like that's the other thing that's so fucking remarkable about these films. There's like never exposition in them, you know. Isn't that is that incredible? Like, there, there's never people walking around being like, "Well, the ore refinery, you know, crashed. We, it crashed here two years ago. Yes, it did. That's why we're towing it." You know, there's like none of that, right? Oh, we called it Acheron, but then we put an R in there because we thought, "Oh, it's better for branding." Like, there's none of that, and and because of it, like we bring ourselves and our subjective viewings of the movie to it, and we're greeted with silence and fear, and that's like a fucking that's a feminist way to make a film, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I do think all the way back to the script, Alien was the the chestburster was always going to happen to a man because they knew that if it happened to a woman, it would come across as gross and, and sexist and exploitative. Um, and I think to your point about um, Alien being a way to experience that fear that you don't normally necessarily feel in real life, I think one of the powerful things about Alien in particular is that it allows you to bring your own readings to it and it allows you to kind of get that reflected back at you in new and surprising ways. Like that's one of the reasons why I love it is that I feel like I'm continually experiencing and learning new things about myself as I'm watching these movies and I'm also learning things about other people. It is a cliche among film critics to bring up Roger Ebert's quote about movies being the great empathy machine, but I think it really, really fits, especially Alien, um, because it does force you to empathize with these characters who have a life that is completely unlike anything that most of us really know. But at the same time, it's so specific and so um, drawn on real life and real lived experience that it still feels real and true and good in a way that sheds a light both on questions about gender with Ripley and with the alien and with all of the other characters. And then also with regards to class, especially the characters below decks too. Um, 
And I kind of wish that the rest of the movies were willing to be that subtle. Sometimes there is a little bit more of that, that more explicit um, imagery or explicit or explicit um, uh, exposition. Although I agree, it's it's not nearly as much as, as it is in other series. I do think, though, that if you're not willing to be receptive to what the movie is telling you, you may completely miss the point. And I'm thinking about... The last time I saw Alien in theaters, I got the chance to see it at uh, the Music Box in Chicago, which is this fantastic art house theater. Um, and uh, Tom Skerritt was actually in attendance, like he did a panel afterwards, which was really neat. But at the end of the movie, as Ripley is disrobing in the Narcissus, somebody somewhere in the back of the house, like actually cat called her as the movie was playing, like somebody just yelled, yeah, like at the screen. And then there was just kind of this ripple of laughter. And the moment that that happened and the moment that I heard all of the other people around me laughing, I immediately felt unsafe in that theater because to me, all of these people were condoning that willingness to objectify a character who had not been objectified by the movie up until that point and who had somehow managed to sit through a movie that is kind of a metaphor about rape and completely missed that point as well and continued to impose a very male gaze upon it. So it left a really bitter taste in my mouth, honestly. Um, and I think about that screening as a way to like not engage with art necessarily. And then, yeah, I don't know. I wish I had spoken up or something at the time, but also I, I did not feel good walking out of that theater. <laughs> I have a question about that scene. I mean, this is for everyone. And of course, I saw that when I was much younger for the first time. I never sexualized it. I read that scene as this woman is removing, she feels comfortable. She's taking off her armor for all intents and purposes. And I I don't know, like, is it really a scene where it's a male gaze or is it just a woman? I mean, I know her underwear is small and you can kind of see her butt a little bit. But also, I know I'm viewing it through the lens of someone who is not sexually attracted to women. So that's in play for sure. But is there credence to that? Is that a male gaze moment or is it a woman just or a person just feeling? Because if if it were, let's say it was Dallas, Dallas was the one who was and Dallas was taking off his clothes and he didn't have a shirt on or whatever. And he took off his his clothes and he had a T-shirt on and like tidy waddies. Would anyone have said anything? Would, ha would that read as sexual? Or does it read as sexual because it's a woman? Hmm. I feel it's sexual only because the sheer size or lack of the, if, if it were just a little bit bigger, then you can make the argument she's vulnerable. I don't feel like she would have worn that. It is not practical. There is no reason. <laughs> like that's not something that most women wear. Like not that small and not in that setting. Mm -hmm. That's my reading. It's like, oh, we're just going to take a little bit off for the men. Had it just been even just a little bit uh, larger in size, cover it a little bit more area, I think it would have played strictly as being vulnerable. I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest. I think it's yeah. kind of thrown in as a little breadcrumb to the men. Yeah, I read it both ways. I, I read it as she's coming home from work. <laughs> And whomst among us has not uh, gotten home and immediately gotten comfortable. Um, and at the same time, the the male gaze piece feels like just the way that the camera is framing Ripley. Like it is trained very firmly on her underwear in a couple of shots in a way that 
again, feels kind of exploitative. So if it weren't for the way that it were framed, I think that I would feel a little bit better about that scene. And I think about scenes in um, Mad Max Fury Road kind of as a contrast to this, because the first time that you come across the convoy in the middle of the desert, all of the women are, are washing themselves off with water. And the focus of the camera is never on these women who are in very ridiculously like sheer white impractical dresses, the focus of the camera is on the nozzle of the water that they're drinking from, because that is what Max is focusing on, because that's what he wants most in the world. The other women who are there, they're just people who happen to be having a drink. And I think that the way that the camera and the editing frames those characters manages to make them not sexualized, even though they very easily could have been sexualized. And I kind of wish Ridley Scott had done something similar with Sigourney Weaver in this movie, too. We're going to take a break and be right back. We all remember that moment. The first time we heard a theme from our favorite movie. How it stayed with us, comforted us, stirring our imagination. Sublime Noise is our Patreon-exclusive film score review show. Starting at just $4 a month, you will gain access to Sublime Noise, as well as our Warehouse of Framerate episodes, where we discuss and review our favorite films. To sign up, go to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Yeah, I think, you know, we've never really unpacked that moment before. Mm-hmm. Uh, which which is interesting because that that is something that is is very we very frequently have to ban posts on you know our social media group because people you know do voyeuristic things where they have her in her underwear with her nipples poking out mm-hmm. and it's like it's just clearly exploitative and and like inappropriate and I think that like that because that is so clearly like a gendered in ter- in, in traditional terms moment in a movie that feels but like more sophisticated than that I think it's a problem and and to me. So first off, let me say this: like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it because I think that it reads to me as a as somebody as a non sexual moment that is her feeling, you know, like her she's stripping off the layers of her armor and she's preparing herself to go into battle and you know, but like you, I, I think it's I I would feel feel like it's almost impossible to argue that a low angle shot where forty percent of the frame is her vagina mm-hmm. and then all, only above that it's like the bottoms of her breasts poking out of a shirt that she's slinking out of to get into an EVA suit. It's like very clearly sexual imagery, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's it's weird. And then like, why is her butt crack out? You know, I think so. If, if Tom Skerritt, for example, very handsome guy, you know, very attractive guy, I think in, in, in traditional, you know, heteronormative terms, like if Tom Skerritt were getting in tidy whities in a t-shirt, I think that that's a false equivalency. Personally, I feel like it would be like Tom Skerritt in a banana hammock <laughs> and like a midriff bearing top. Mm. where he has to like angle his dick in first into his suit because it's like protruding too much, you know, like that's the kind of, that's the, the vibe that that moment visually gives off. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, I saw it young enough to remember my own feelings being conflicted on that because like when I saw it before I was a teenager, that never occurred to me. And then I saw it as a teenager and I was like, well, this is kind of like hot. And I had like that weird moment where I had to like deal with the fact that I had hormones and it was feeling feelings, you know, and then I moved past that because I was no longer 12 and I was like, okay, it's more subtle than that. But I do think that's kind of a problematic moment in the film that is somewhat of a disservice to it. But, you know, I, w- I wouldn't change it personally. Moving on to Alien 3. I mean, we can, of course, move all over 
And I know, I, I don't know who mentioned it here in terms of the male gaze shifting for Alien 3. And I, I would, at least again, in my perspective, contend that that didn't happen. That, mm. that Fincher never framed her as, I mean, she's certainly gendered in the script for sure. I mean, you know, she's a woman, you know, because she's a woman, she is a threat to your earlier points at the same time. But there are also the things that are happening in the story where she is coming on to Clemens. She's, you know, she's acting, behaving in a way clearly where men mostly act. Those lines that men give women in bars that are cheap and, and easy and most women don't fall for them, Ripley's sort of doing a version of that much quieter in this quiet space with Clemens. Again, just kind of throwing things on their head, but you, you don't, I, you never see them actually having sex. I don't know if that scene was ever filmed. I don't think it was. I never feel like Fincher took the camera and said, hey, this is a really beautiful woman. In my opinion, arguably, I think Sigourney Weaver at that time was her most beautiful with her bald head. She's her most feminine in some ways, at least for me. I found her to be very sexually attractive. Maybe that's because she looked more like a man. I don't know. Um, but I did. I found her to be really beautiful. But I didn't find that the camera was framing her in a way that sexualized her. Mm-hmm. And I, and even in the moment where she's taken, she's just finished with a shower. I mean, actually, no, there's a moment where she's in the shower. You don't see her breasts. Even when you, we first, she's laying, she's put down on the, like the, the bed when they, she's carried in from, you know, the outside. And when she stands up, you don't see her breasts. You know, you, you see this long angle of her leg up to her arm, but you never see her, her body parts or her genitals whatsoever. And I, I remember thinking, even as a very young person when I saw Alien 3, well, that was tasteful because most men want to show you that. They want to show you like the TNA in, in movies. Like that's what it's about. But they didn't, Fincher didn't do that with Ripley. He didn't do that when she was in the shower. She didn't, he didn't do that when she first arrived. He didn't do that in a sex scene. Certainly, of course, she, there was an attempted rape. But even at that point, yes, she's bent over and it's violent and it's disturbing. Her clothes never come off. And they're not, I mean, and they're using very, demeaning language like you know mm-hmm. the language that men would use in a situation like that but i even in that moment the way he was framing her was giving her power looking at her from below and looking at her which is a a, a very it's a it's a normal thing in in the film industry in terms of like giving people power by positioning the camera from below so that you're looking up at them and the whole time that's happening you're still looking up at her for whatever reason she still has the power and again this is my read on the movie i don't know if it's a correct read if there is a correct read but i feel like ripley is in terms of who she is she's at her strongest in this movie Hmm. i mean i don't think that that frame gives her power necessarily but i do think that it grants her agency um and i i completely agree with you that Fincher is very good about not subjecting Ripley to the male gaze, at least through the camera. But I think it's pretty clear that the rest of the inmates say, see her in that way. Absolutely. And I think that that's a really like useful and helpful distinction because Ripley is reduced to her gender by the inmates on the planet, but the movie never, never does that to her. Um, which is part of the reason why it's again one of my favorites um in the series is that it has its willingness to it has the willingness to draw that subtle distinction and then trust that the audience will follow through whether or not the movie succeeds at everything it's setting out to do i think is another question as well but david fincher is very good at 
framing the human body in motion in ways that granted agency and power and in ways that, um, I don't know, like are, are still surprising even today. I think it is worth noting that David Fincher, before he directed Alien 3, was a really well-regarded commercial and music video director and was responsible for directing a lot of Madonna's music videos as well. So he is definitely capable of, of framing the human body and specifically the female body in a way that looks very beautiful, very sensual, and also is still able to grant those characters that agency. So I think if he had wanted to show some more nudity, I probably wouldn't have had a problem with it because I think he's smart enough about the blocking and framing to be able to keep the point across that Ripley is still her own woman and she doesn't belong to the camera and she doesn't belong to an audience that's there to consume her. I think that that's something that the films consistently do really well is that, the, Sarah, you said this a number of times tonight, they understand that perspective is very important and that just because some of the characters are seeing things a certain way doesn't mean it's the responsibility of the film to see them that way as mm -hmm. well. And a lot of movies don't get that right, you know? Um, and I think that's where that male gaze thing comes in is, is that like we start seeing this movie that like clearly has its own like visual agenda to it that is like doesn't even care about the fact that we should be seeing this character from a different lens. Um, and I think that that's like, you know, it's I, I, as you were talking, I was thinking about Alien 3 because I'm frequently thinking about Alien 3 because it's a great film. And I was thinking about specifically how it is not asexualized like it's not like there is no like it's it's the only one that has like a sex scene in it although it's absent from the actual movie itself um it's the only one that has like a, a like willing sensuousness to it in terms mm. of her relationship with clemens you know because with hicks in the previous film there's like this very implicit you know kind of little back and forth going on and with you could even argue that in the first film that there's a little bit of that with Dallas, although I, I don't really feel that way. I don't know people do. But in Alien 3, like she is asserting her femininity in a way that is so what's, what's interesting about it is that like visually she's the least feminine of any, of, you know, in terms of what we think of the visual language of films and women, which typically, you know, don't have a bald head and, you know, aren't wearing brown bags, right? Um, so she's a visually kind of defeminized, but her actual like internal femininity is more overt in Alien 3 in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just like an interesting contradiction that I think is part of why like, we, we talk about ambivalence all the time, especially on the Blade Runner show, like that's as, as being pro probably like the number one thing that I care about in movies is like, give me like a window that I can poke into from various angles and feel things out and have my own my own read of it at where i am in my personal life at any given time then alien 3 is like completely rife with that and i think really one of them is the ways that it treats sexuality which i think is an important component of feminism too right that you know that it is not it's not a, a desexualized movement like that's that's an intentional part of it and alien 3 gives us a kind of a cool window into that i think Yeah, I agree. And especially um, due to the contrast of the setting, right? Like you were saying, she looks her most masculine, um, but because she is surrounded by, you know, men who look very much like her, but are clearly, um, you know, violent offenders, that makes her femininity stand out even more in contrast to that. Um, and I think that was so well done. In that film there's so many layers in that film um to 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 call upon and you know even just the visual image of the um sort of the 
juxtaposition of her and Clemens um, post, you know, the sexual act, they have reversed roles, right? Typically we find the women in the spooned position and the men, the man behind, and she is the one behind. Mm. Like that image always stuck with me too. Um, you know, that she was the instigator in that she was the one who was more forward, really. How do you feel the other movies play with her sexuality or uh, like comment on her sexuality? Hmm. I mean, I, I don't think it's really there all that much in the first movie, um, other than the aforementioned Narcissus scene. Um, I do love that she and Hicks flirt in the face of certain death, like all throughout Aliens. Um, and that in and of itself, I think, is just enough for me that I, I think it works. I find her probably threatening is not the right word to use but it's the one that feels closest to whatever word is the right word to use at least in alien resurrection and i think that whatever sigourney weaver is doing as ripley eight in that movie is most intriguing because she's very clearly like ripley and also not ripley and ripley who came back wrong and i think also there are quite a few overtones of queerness that are are missing completely from the previous movies as well. So there's that scene where Ripley 8 and Call kind of confront each other and Call it literally impales her hand with a knife, which is a, an extremely sexual uh, symbol. And I think that Ripley is using that she's 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 clearly enjoying herself in that scene and I think she's enjoying the power that she has over call i don't know that the movie necessarily is saying anything like really coherent about their relationship necessarily but it is an interesting complicating factor i don't know that we can say that that's actually ripley doing that though that's that's just another version of ripley who who came in in a later lifetime who am i you're a sting a construct they grew you in a fucking lab now they brought it out of you not all the way out. As for the other two movies, I think there, there's got to be, is there actually a sex scene in Prometheus or is it also one of those like we're going to kind of pan away to wafting curtains between Shaw and, and her yeah, boyfriend? I, it, yeah. I think they jump into bed and then they cut away. Gotcha. Yeah. And then there, there might is, be a wafting curtain in there though. I think there might <laughs> <laughs> And then there is the shower scene right. in Alien Covenant as well, which is definitely played more for horror, I think, than any sensuality. Like, it feels like it it's probably sexy for those characters, but I personally am completely turned off by the scene because it's terrifying and there's an alien in there that's about to, to murder everybody. So, I don't know. Like, I think just the imagery of the alien and the egg and a lot of the stuff that's going on kind of in the background and in the character design is enough to comment on ideas about human sexuality for me without having to actually bring any sex scenes into it personally. But I what y'all think about that. Personally, like just going over the, you know, just from one to three, I try not to think about resurrection too much. <laughs> like you said, it's not really Ripley to me. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for me to even comment on that. But I think, you know, obviously the first film I think the whole premise was not focusing on it at all so that men, it was more about men trying to feel what it was like to experience the body horror. And so very little was commented on it, right? We all know that 
Ripley was sort of written as a man and then, you know, cast as a, a as woman, but it doesn't really come into play. I don't really see the undertones with Dallas either, Patrick. Mm. I know it's been brought up. Um, I think people are playing off that one scene um, where he sort of makes that move to protect her from the face hugger. Um, and they sort of play that off. And there's like a little bit of arguing in between them. But I don't really see anything there. Um, in the second one, as you were saying, I I love the relationship between her and Hicks because it's hinted at. There's that flirtation that is done always appropriately in the moment that sort of relieves the tension that that built up fear, um, but never taken to a point of in a, like it's never pushed beyond to a point of absurdity. Um, because they wouldn't be doing that in that situation. You know, they have like four hours to live. So I love that it's there and that it's shown that she does have a sexuality. She does have an interest. Um, I think it was done perfectly to show she's very much, you know, um, a, a, she's a, a, at least in these films, she's attracted uh, to men. They are attracted to, they find her attractive and, it's not played for um, the male gaze of the audience, right? It's not like we got to throw this in to appease the male members. And then I do love how it's sort of flipped in the third one. Like you said, she kind of takes the the forward role. So I always found that fascinating, her relationships, um, and that it's not completely negated, that it's there. Um, and that's part of being a woman, right? that because a lot of movies tend to strip away like if they need to make the woman powerful then there's either there they play up the sexual factor to the extreme or they completely asexualize the the female so i like how there's that balance in there i like that too and, and as you're talking i'm thinking specifically alien resurrection i think is interesting to look at in terms of Joss Whedon having written it, mm -hmm. because I think that is the exception. I think part of why it doesn't hold up the way a lot of the other ones do is because that is a movie that has a, quite a lot of male gaze in it. And there's the Ripley eight call moment, but there's also like Elgin and Hillard and like the foot fetishization and the butt cheeks and that. So like, it's like a weird sexualized moment that doesn't need to be there. And there's also like all of Johnner's comments about like wanting to like bone Ripley and about like what he ate and what, you know, what he wished he could do. And like, there's a lot of things that are played kind of like we were talking about with atomic blonde and salt and Lara Croft and things like where it's sort of like, Oh, it's just a movie. We're having fun. Check it out. Oh, it's a sex joke. It's okay. Let's keep going. Next scene. There's that weird kind of like casual casualness to it that I think a lot of the time Jean-Pierre Genet does a good job of kind of hiding. I think mean, I have the resurrection script in, in my room right now. I, I fucking hate it. I think it's, it's <laughs> really, really bad. And it's actually a testament to Genet's filmmaking ability that he manages to, you know, it, to put so much layer into it that you kind of miss a lot of this stuff when you watch it for the first time. But even the interaction with Ripley eight and call that's a, that's a, a I mean, talk about like symbology, right? It's like taking place in a fucking chapel, right? And like, there's this penetrating knife wound with white fluid coming out of it. It's like, it's like, it's, it's ludicrously over metaphor, meta metaphorized, you know, I think mm -hmm. what's, how, what's the word for that? Metaphoricalized. There's too many metaphors. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's too metaphorical. And I feel like, uh, that's like really one of the hallmarks of like bad filmmaking, right? Cause that's like not ambivalent at all. That's just like, here's like big shocking images that are going to have very specific connotations for you. Mm. 
Um, and the other movies don't really do that. I think you're right. I think in Covenant, like the the there's like the shower sex scene, but that also to its credit, I think a lot of people complain about that scene, which is their prerogative. That's fine. I think to its credit, though, that it doesn't sucks. play. Jamie <laughs> <laughs> fucking hates it. <laughs> I, I think that it it doesn't play as sexual on purpose like I'm, I'm glad that that wasn't supposed to be tantalizing or something because that that would be even it's already ridiculous that it happens in the first place like I, i'm fully aware of that it's it's a, it's it's a bizarre thing to have in that movie especially after what's just happened it's just like what why are we doing this which is why i think the fact that it gets cut short after six seconds by a, a murder is is fitting you know mm-hmm. um but I think that, yeah, like sexuality is an interesting angle to look at these movies through, too, because like at the end of the day, like these are the er sexual fear movies that we have to talk. I mean, like, this is like the rape horror series, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And yet, like actual human sexuality in traditional terms is like it's it's very, it's treated very delicately throughout a lot of it, which I think is kind of interesting. With, with that exception of Alien Resurrection, which is just so deeply cartoonish. I do think, though, that some of that dialogue is pretty telling, or at least I feel like it informs Call's character more than anything else, because there's that moment where everybody finds out that Call is an android. And I think Jonner says, like, and to think that I wanted to fuck her, as though, like, he now is not remotely interested in that, specifically because of who she is. And I think for me, like, I'm always going to come back to the androids because the androids are are secretly my favorite thing <laughs> about this series. And I think that that piece of genre inherently like denying calls like createdness and and her her ability to be a full person even if she's not human i think is really telling and i think it's really gross that he frames that in sexual terms and i think it's really gross that like he's the one who says that in that way out loud but i think it also i i, I feel like it sheds a light on like who we do and don't believe to be human and who we do and don't believe are worthy of our respect. And John clearly never respected her because he thought that about her in the first place in those terms and in that way. But I do think that it tells you a lot about who he thinks is worthy of that trust and respect and um, worth. And I think by extension, that kind of makes me question like, well, who do I think is worthy of that trust and respect and worth too? So not in like, I need to take this lesson from an alien movie because I can't think of anything more uninteresting. But um, I do think it's, it's a fascinating little character interaction that says a lot about that movie's attitude towards people and who counts as people and, and who doesn't get to count as people. To that end, uh, when I think about resurrection, certainly specifically Ripley eight. And as we discuss feminism, I feel like, and I've, we've had this discussion, not fully in depth, but in terms of Joss Whedon tasked with bringing Ripley back. And he didn't know really how to do it. I mean, he knew how to do it in like scientific terms, you know, like pseudo junk science, you know, let's bring this, you know, use her blood and bring her back with an alien in her, which of course wouldn't happen. But, I will always argue that Ripley eight in resurrection is nothing. He brings her back and Mm. she does nothing. She is not useful. She's tagging along. And for me, that's the gravest sin of that movie is Mm. that you bring this character back, even though she isn't the character, she isn't the original Ripley. So she's kind of not a Ripley at the same time. She has all of the memories of at least we believe she has some of the memories of the original Ripley. And she just is along for the ride. She's like, she's there. 
She's in prison. She gets let out. She's kind of running around. Then she finds the group that are trying to get back to the Betty. And then she falls through a, tra- you know, uh, you know, an opening. And she's in this very kind of sexual vaginal, what they call it, the Viper Pit, where she's just kind of writhing. And it's a great shot. It's very Giger-esque, but it's like kind of ridiculous. Like what? What's going on here? Why? Why do we need to see Ripley like this? They, Joss Whedon didn't. didn't didn't know how to write her. He didn't know how to make her useful. And I think the brilliance of the original trilogy is we have this character who is there for a reason and she has a sense of urgency and agency. And so, but then she's brought back and in, in Alien Resurrection, they use the term, she's the, the byproduct of genetic engineering or something they called her or the, what they use a certain term when they're talking about her as essentially she's a meat byproduct. Yeah. A meat byproduct. And that's how she's written too. They didn't know what to do with her. The, and I think, again, it's its gravest sin where you bring back one of the most powerful characters in science fiction history, at least cinematic history, and you do nothing with her. And then there was a, a, a moment, I brought this up before, there's a moment in an interview with Joss Whedon, and he's talking about when he was first tasked to write the movie. And he was like, he had a conversation with, with Sigourney Weaver, and he was like, Please, you know, he's like, I didn't know if she's going to ask me to write a scene where she's with a puppy. And I remember being so offended, like, who the fuck do you think you are? Like, have you even seen these movies before? Have you seen the first three? What of that character would tell you that Ripley would want to be written with a puppy? Hmm. Like, it was just the strangest, most dis, like, uh, disarming thing that he could say. Like, he reduced her to this, oh, I really wasn't sure. It, it, it was just fascinating thing so that's just one thing that i wanted to bring up with ripley and i don't know again that's just my perspective loving her character but seeing her a version of her in a movie where she does nothing where she's essentially a powerless and the only time john or found respect for her is he realized he couldn't beat her he realized <laughs> he couldn't take her on he realized she was more powerful physically than him so he shut up but until that point he didn't care and the jokes, which of course were written by Joss Whedon, to me, tell me what Joss Whedon thinks of female power, whatever that means. It's something where let's disempower that. Okay, there's a moment where that moment where Ripley is in the in the cloning room and she finds that version of herself. I think it's the most powerful moment in that film, which I do not like. And after she does that, there's a very intense scene where she kills a version of her that's writhing on the you know the the counter or whatever, and then. Jonner has it says it must be his chick thing. Just completely eviscerating the the tense the the tenseness of that moment. I I oh, I just can't even. Every time I think about that, like I wish they would have cut from it. I don't know why he kept it. I don't know mm. if uh, Jeanet didn't if it was contractual or what. Or he just didn't think about it. But one other thing I wanted to point out again. This is just something that I noticed. And we talk about Giger and his aesthetic. You know, certainly his aesthetic is what makes Alien Alien as much as Sigourney Weaver and Ripley make Alien Alien. At the same time, if you look through his work, there's a lot of body parts, but there's not a lot of people. And certainly in Alien, you see these very vaginal openings for the derelict. There's a lot. And when he gets in, you get into the egg chamber, there's even more like thin vaginal openings. They're everywhere. Mm. And if you look at his work, they're very... There, it's a lot of, I, I, arguably, I would say it's almost violent, violence, um, 
things happening to these vaginal body parts where so at some sometimes there's there's tubes going in it which look very phallic but most of the time they're just kind of there and they're in pieces and it's disturbing it's disturbing to me so in in one sense you have this female like body parts of women kind of being represented all over which is i think dehumanizing in my opinion but then you also have this very phallic alien raping people or attempting mm-hmm. to and chest bursting and all of those things and so there's this dynamic in play and i'm wondering if giger's aesthetic how does that work in there like is it is it something that's problematic and i don't mean to like I, i'm not like i think it's obviously these movies are are great but when you start thinking about things you start processing things you start saying well what was up with giger that he had to paint you know the vagina being abused and misused and they're interesting and they're beautiful but they're also terrifying and horrible but we can't look away much like we can't look away at the alien but i i've been thinking like what was up with giger did he empower women with his work or did he he disempower them so i posit that or another secret third thing that we'll never actually know, maybe potentially. True. I I, I kind of want to get back to the um, point you raised about alien resurrection, Jamie, um, because there is this question of like, is Sigourney Weaver useful? And part of me wonders, like, does she have to be useful to be a good female character? And honestly, I don't think she does. Um, she also rips an alien's tongue out, which is rad as hell, but <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Um and let me, me let me just make a correction. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, totally. Uh, by term useful, I mean when you're if someone says Jamie, you're you're going to write a story about Ripley. I'm going to give her shit to do. So I don't mm-hmm. mean she wasn't useful to me. She didn't seem important to the story. And how dare you write a movie where Ripley doesn't seem very important to the story? Hmm. Or she just seems like yeah, bring her along because she's contractually obligated to be here. The stuff where she's in the she's in her like cell. That's very interesting in the dialogue she's having with Call, but then when she leaves it, she just kind of is like, oh, okay, I'm here. Okay, yeah. now, you know. Enjoying being a, a meat byproduct, I guess. Um, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I think even just the meat byproduct of it all is vital to that story because it tells you so much about what the United Systems military values and doesn't value. And the fact that they're willing to just label this literal miracle of of cloning technology as a meat byproduct because she isn't going to give them what they need anymore. Um, that in and of itself feels like enough reason to include Sigourney Weaver in, in your story and to include Ripley in your story. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, and maybe that gets at the the giger of it all, too, because a lot of those body parts are kind of disembodied and and they're out there and they're floating in, in the middle of his nightmare scapes and I, I also find them beautiful and very compelling and terrifying at the same time and at the same time because they aren't attached to anything they're also technically useless so i i don't know what to do with that i don't have an art history degree or anything um i just find that nightmare imagery that is both really i don't know fascinating and i can't look away and also really deeply repellent at the same time really interesting too and that kind of brings us back to that Barbara Creed idea as well, because she's engaging with this idea of um, the abject, which comes from um, a book called Powers of Horror, which was written by Julia Kristeva in 1980. And the idea of the abject is this thing that is so gross and horrifying that you are completely repulsed by it. You have to push it away. You don't want to engage with it at all. And Kristeva argues that 
that idea of the ancient mother is something that is abject because it is that reminder that you came from something else and you are not just yourself. You are also everybody and everything that you came from. And in so in order to um, uh, assert yourself as a human being, you have to kind of reconstruct that meaning for yourself after you've encountered something horrifying, which kind of encapsulates the alien like in a way, because you have a lot of that very vaginal and, and very um, Freudian imagery that kind of ties into that idea of it's abject, it's gross, it's dripping, it probably smells bad, it looks unsettling. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to look at it anymore. But also, I can't look away because if I do, it might murder me. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, that's those ideas about what is allowed to exist and what we cannot, like, condone existing because it's so gross, I think, are, are some of the things that kind of fascinate me when looking at the Alien series through a feminist lens, because then it also gets at the question of, like, well, who's allowed to exist in the world and who's allowed to have an opinion in the world and who's allowed to, um, I don't know, like shape and mold the world into a better place for everybody else to live into. Yeah. I, there, I feel like there's almost too much to revisit <laughs> in both of these comments that you've just both had, but um, I, I do want to just say, I, I love this idea. And this was also in uh, Barbara Creed, Creed, Creel? Creed. Yep. Barbara Creed's uh, book, this idea that like, you know, we, we always kind of reduce alien to the body horror in it. And like that, that's the thing to, to be afraid of, but there's something much deeper going on about the fear of where we come from and what that actually implies. I like I hadn't really considered that until you had sent us this, this chapter from this book. I think it also hints at other themes that we're going to be unpacking on a series of episodes coming later this year on Lovecraft, which I think also does similar things in a slightly less gender specific way about like what happens if you actually learn what you are or where you came from, or what if you weren't the first one there, you know, mm. there's a, there's a very deep fear to that, that I think, um, is going to be really fun to unpack more. And just going back briefly to uh, Giger, I mean, for all of the the disembodied vaginas, there's there's a lot of penises being impaled and a lot of people sucking their own dicks in an ever outlasting Ouroboros of body horror. Like there's there's I think there's a lot of just sexual imagery in general. People have you know I don't want to like use the term canceled, but people have done that with Giger quite a bit in the past. And you know there's evidence to support that or deny that depending on how you want to look at his relationships with the women in his life and the ways that he depicted women on an artwork, especially when they were actually like, you know, based on real life people. Um, but I, I think that, I think doing that is sort of, uh, maybe I'm going to be problematic with the way I'm phrasing this. I don't think art has an imperative to be morally good or bad. And I think if we start treating it like it does, we start seeing it for something that it isn't. I think that part of the appeal of Giger's work has nothing to do with whether or not it's okay, you know, or whether or not it's tasteful or not, which you're not saying, Jamie, but also with like whether or not it's even, you know, male gaze inspired or something. I, I think Giger's work is touching on things that are sort of deeper than that, that it's up to us to determine whether or not we're okay with if we want to. And if we're, and what's great about Giger is that like, I, I am never okay with it. And yet I am never anything less than enthralled by it. And I think that's like more so than any other artist I can I literally, I can think of, I think his work speaks to that again, ambivalence, that, that idea of like, what am I looking at? What does that mean? Um, and so the last thing I'll say, and I know we should probably start closing this out pretty soon, but um, there's a great film in Alien Resurrection. I really, really believe that. 
I'm not like a resurrection quote unquote hater. I know Jamie, you don't love and hate things. I'm not saying you are either, but a lot of people kind of shit all over resurrection. I it's very nostalgic for me. I saw it when I was a kid. It was the first time I saw theaters. Like there's things about it that I really like, but I think that there is such a more sophisticated film lurking under the surface of what we're actually presented with. And I really think that if we had more time with Ripley eight as as almost a non-character if we just got to be with her and see her experience more it could have really interesting implications that are existential and strange right like that body horror sequence you're talking about where she sees all the embryos uh like that that is i think universally signaled out by people as their favorite scene in the film i mean any blog post about alien resurrection says like oh you thought this movie was bad but go watch this part three quarters way through like that's an incredibly compelling three or four minutes of cinema um, surrounded by ineptitude, I think, especially with the genre comment that you're talking about, which just like, and again, like that is not a sophisticated thing. Joss Whedon is not commenting on like the fucking male gaze in that moment. He's putting a joke about women in there with the idea that like, oh, that was intense and emotional, but like, aren't women, you know, like, I mean, like it's, it's super fucked up. Right. And that's the problem with the resurrection. But like those scenes, like what, I mean, I think John Frizzell's scoring of the scenes where Ripley's being carried into the hive and you're seeing like the light passing over, like those are incredibly sensual and fascinating and unsettling. I think that the newborn as an idea is very interesting. I think that like, obviously they weren't super thrilled with how the effects came out and it does look like garbage, but like as a body horror concept, this idea of like flipping the trope on its head and having the queen birth a human humanoid creature, like it's really interesting. So this is all to say that like, I, I feel like there is, I would love to see somebody do like a, a re a remaking of that movie just for the purposes of art. I think that like in a lot of ways, it's, it's sort of the most gigaresque because it's like, what do you do in a post character environment? Like, what do you do when your hero comes back and she's actually not your hero? That's, I mean, what are the movie does that? Like movies don't do that. Right. Like we bring people, we bring jaws back for fucking four movies in a row, you know, and it's always like basically just a clone of the one that came before doing the exact same thing. The other ones did just in slightly more fantastical ways. We bring, you know, the lead actor back time. And again, fucking Vin Diesel in 35 fast and furious movies. He's always basically just going to talk about family and his charger. Like there's, there's, you know what I mean? We see the variation of the same thing, but resurrection brought this character back who was so archetypal and prototypical and huge and gave us this like dark version of her, which is like fucking fascinating, but it did it in a clumsy way. And I think that had it been more feminist, I think maybe we would have had a more empathetic view into her actual experience. Mm -hmm. And we would have been able to like, listen to her more as opposed to just giving her, you know, jokes about fork being pronounced like fuck. Right. I think as we wrap my last question, certainly for you, Sarah, but for everyone, and as I continue to kind of understand what being a feminist as a male, you know, as a, like what that means, what does it really mean? But also asking that question of the canonical first three films, is it successful? And I don't mean successful in terms of, yes, this is, you can put this in a flyer about feminism as a, like, not as a tool of feminism, but is it successful in showcasing a woman to answer my question, maybe it does. Maybe it's not fully successful because of Alien in that moment where she is undressing in the closet and you see these strange angles. But largely, I feel like it is. If you're going to talk about feminism, I mean, as I as I've been reading too, you know, there's so many articles and books about Ripley and these movies. But 
it, it would seem like this is a successful experiment in how you treat women like people. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Oh, I completely. I mean, we're talking about it for <laughs> we've been talking about it for an hour and a half. And I feel like that alone makes it a, a successful experiment because we're willing to tear it apart and and look at the individual pieces and see like, well, what works and what doesn't, and then further that conversation. And people have been doing that since the original Alien came out. So yeah, absolutely. 100% successful. And I think even in the places where these movies stumble, because they do stumble, I think it's all the more telling that the rest of them still work. And I think that those places where the movies do stumble is also telling of where we were in the culture at the time that those movies were made. And I think that they're an interesting benchmark to hold ourselves against as we go on further into the future and more alien movies come out. And maybe it's also an indicator that we don't necessarily get as far along as we think we do, because I would argue that the first alien movie probably gets across that idea of Ripley as like a whole character who isn't just reduced to her gender much better than even Alien Covenant or Prometheus do. So um, successful and also fun to wrestle with, I think. The 12-year-old me would say a definitive yes, as the 45-year-old me does, because when I saw that in the middle of the 80s or late 80s, I saw it when it, a little bit after it came out, um, having grown up with every story either being about boys and their dreams and aspirations or men and the women who support them this changed my life this mm -hmm. movie opens up a world to me where i could just do what everyone else does i would you know especially for aliens but alien too everybody was just on equal footing there was no commentary about it there was no look at me, I'm a woman and I'm doing this. It just was. And that was life altering for me. It really was uh, to this day. I mean, the impact, I cannot overstress the impact that it had. So it absolutely did at a time when, you know, at 13, 14, when my whole world is being shaped by how others see me and, you know, what, what am I going to be that, I truly believe that movie grounded me in such a way where it gave me the confidence that I'm going to do whatever I want. It truly did. And I was at a crossroads at that moment. I was like, what am I going to be? And Ripley was like my pilot light. There you go. Hey. <laughs> she was my pilot light. And um, so I definitively say yes. It was groundbreaking then. It still is. I mean, we're still talking about it. And in some ways... I want another, I, I'm still longing for that now. And I don't think anyone has captured it quite right since. I truly don't. Here and there, but as an, as an overall character, I don't, I think she's unmatched. And something that, uh, Jamie, you brought this up quite a few times. Something that I think we're wrestling with as a culture or a civilization now is like, we feel this need to be very explicit with things right like when we have an allegory for something like you know this like we have to call attention to it and comment on it and make sure we're like putting the right buzzwords in so the right hashtags get trending and it's like there's very there's very little room for self-exploration via film 
anymore at least i mean a24 and movies like that i I think like those those are exceptions to to the norm which is like we kind of know what we're going to watch because we're kind of told what it's going to be about and that really informs the way that we live with it but alien like how fucking avant-garde is alien and that it like doesn't tell us anything it literally is a, a borderline silent movie compared to films that are made now and yet the themes and the treatments of things like gender are so nuanced and interesting that like we're still unpacking it today um i I just think that 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 is further you know testament to why they're my favorite movies of all time and why my life is so dedicated to talking about those movies i mean like a significant chunk of what i do with my life is fucking alien related largely because of that but i also think just in my closing thought, you know, I've brought this up in episodes before, but it's not it's not insignificant that I always wanted to be Ellen Ripley when I grew up mm-hmm. and that I still do. Like that that's not and of course she was the hero and she was cool and like there are things protagonistic about her that would make any young kid want to grow up to be like that. But like it wasn't those things, you know. It wasn't her flamethrower. It wasn't any of the tropes that we kind of, you know, like to latch onto her as this prototypical action heroine, whatever that means. It was because she was just the best fucking person, you know? And she was flawed and she was complicated and she was fascinating and she was surprising. And at the end of the day, just like Andy was saying, she was so deeply in love with like the with the human spirit and with the need to endure and survive and to not lose sense of humanity in the face of insurmountable odds and that's what heroism looks like regardless of what your fucking external genitalia looks like or whatever society tries to tell you you can or can't be so like i i'm really happy that today my two boys fight over who gets to be and literally everything that we do they want to be Ripley and they fight about it, you know, whether we're playing a board game or we're playing, you know, make believe. Um, and it's not like this, we don't comment on it because we don't need to, because she doesn't, she doesn't need that. You know, she's full. She's a fully realized person that lives in our hearts. And and I, I'm, I'm really grateful that I grew up with that as somebody to look up to, because I think it made me see my mother differently. I think it made me see a lot of women in my life differently. And I think that, um, you know, because of the way I look and the way that I, and what I was born into, um, I might've been more closed off from that, you know, for longer if, if Ripley hadn't been there as this pilot light for me, you know? Last thing that I want to say, and I was just thinking about this. My first memory of being in the movie theater was seeing Return of the Jedi as a very small child. And I was in the theater over and over with a bunch of my friends, the Davis movie theater, actually in uptown Chicago, which is still there. It's a great mm-hmm. theater, uh, second hit, second run theater. So you could see movies for like 75 cents or a dollar or whatever. And I remember loving Princess Leia, just loving Carrie Fisher's portrayal of Princess Leia. And just she was this in any every sense of the word. She was powerful. She was opinionated. She was she had actualized herself. She had agency. And I noticed even as a younger child in, in Empire Strikes Back, she had a smaller role. She was written to be a little bit more bossy and just always kind of in a bad mood and pissy. I'm thinking, what? And she wasn't like that in the first film. And I was like, what? What's really going on? Like, what? Where is she? Why isn't she in this movie as much? And why is she relegated into this love affair with Han Solo? Not that I didn't disagree with it. I I loved the movie, but I, I and like this is just strange. Like she has a smaller role and she seems she doesn't seem there's just something different about her character. And then you fast forward to Return of the Jedi. 
she's the first, well, arguably the first time you really see her, she's in that gold bikini for a long time in the movie. She's quiet. She eventually kills Jabba. And then she's, uh, then she's taken hostage by the Ewoks, which was ridiculous. And even there, she's put in this dress. Her hair is down. She doesn't really say much. She doesn't really have much of a role in the movie. So over the course of these three films, she's sidelined. Whereas with Ripley, over the course of three films, she's brought, she blossoms into who she is. And you have this, in some ways, going on the same time the Star Wars movies are happening, where you have these very powerful women. One is continued, for whatever reason, they continue to write her with power. And uh, power in every sense of the word. Then you have Princess Leia, who was a very powerful character, disempowered after three movies sidelined and then she's essentially just a an ornament on a christmas tree where whether she's sitting by jabba or she's at in in the in the uh, ewok village and i i think about these women because carrie fisher is someone who's very important to me and leia that first iteration of leia is someone is someone that i think about all the time i just loved who she was you can see how they wrote this woman. They didn't know what to do with her, so they sidelined her, and it was pretty tragic. So it's just something that I thought was worth mentioning. And with that, thank you, Sarah, for coming on the show. Hopefully you can come back again soon. Thank you so much for having me. This was a delight. It's always great to talk to you. Please come back. Yeah, please do. Well, yes. I'll, I'll try to find more of uh, theological feministic <laughs> topics we can get you back on for soon. We'll talk about Death. Faces of the Deep again or something like that. Well, actually, we, we did discuss the role of God in the alien, like theology in the alien movies. And you don't really, of course, really get into that until the end as an idea for an episode. So maybe mm. we'll have you back for that. Maybe we will. I'm in. <laughs> Sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Sarah. And Thanks thank you, so thank much. everybody. Oh, you, you know what? Just uh, before we close, we got a new patron today. I want to go ahead and read that super quick. Did you see that, Jamie? I did. Gilpin, yeah. right? Gilpin. Yeah. Let me uh, pull up his name. Tobin we'll Gilpin. Just put this at the end. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, okay. Uh, and just before we close, a special thank you to Bobby Gilpin, who just joined our Patreon program like two hours before we're recording. Thank you so much for joining our buddy Giovanni Mazin, who just joined yesterday. We have uh, a lot of new content coming, including hopefully an exclusive interview pretty soon for you on that. So if you want to join our Patreon program, just go to perfectorganism.com slash support or go to patreon.com slash perfectorganism if you want to cut right to it. And we'd love to have you. We've got a lot more going on there, too. And uh, it'd be fun to welcome you aboard. Thank you. Thanks so much. To find out more information about Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please go to www.perfectorganism.com. If you'd like to support the show, please go to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.